Hello, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. It is a lovely summer evening in Los Angeles, and my beloved friend Peter Rollins is in the back house. Okay, back for round two. Back for round two. Last week, we did part one of Pete Rollins on God, and uh, so this week we're going to do part two, and then a part three will come after part two, and uh, there's so much... So much to talk about, so much to explore. A couple things real quickly. Uh, this week, I'll be in Belfast, Dublin, Paris, London, and would love to see you there. More How to Be Here tour. And also, Pete and I will be in Lincoln, which is a couple hours outside of London, yep. and we'll be doing an event together. Yeah. We'll be there. So uh, we would love to see you there if you want to hang out with us for two days in a lovely English town. Yes, I don't know how lovely it is. I've never been to Lincoln in my <laughs> life, but I'm sure it's beautiful. I think I, this is how I think the event's going to go. There's One of us will speak, then we'll go to the pub and yep. we'll eat. Then somebody else will speak, and then we'll, then I'll have tea. Yes. And we'll go back to the pub. I'll have a gin and tonic. And then we'll go back to the event. That's how it's going to go for a couple of days. So we would love to have you all join us. And then... A couple other things. Um, Kristen and I did a thing on parenting. It's almost like an audio book, but there's no book. It's called Launching Rockets. We released it a couple weeks ago. It's at my site. And then um, I love talking about communicating. So uh, maybe you work in business and you have to take ideas and give them shape and form. Maybe you have to talk to people you work with. Maybe you are like a teacher, preacher, sermonizer. Maybe you blog or write or something. Um, but I'm doing an event in September here at the Improv in LA all about communication. How do you take ideas and give them form? How do you memorize a talk? Um, it's all new content um, that I'm doing on the creative process in terms of communication. I'd love to see you there, and there's still a few spots left for that. Now, let's get to the main event, because Pete Rollins is in the back house. Now, last week we talked about God as... Uh, you walked us through God as super being, hyper being, God as ground of being, God as event. Yep. Now, this episode, you're going to talk to us about what? Well, I was going to have a test for all your listeners for last <laughs> week to see if they, uh, how well they, they uh, do on all of those four. Um, but this week, we're going to go deeper. Okay. And we're going to use a different criteria. We're going to talk about God as the imaginary, yep. God as the symbolic, and God as the real. Imaginary, symbolic, real. Imaginary and you had said something uh, last week when we were having dinner about, it wasn't what do you think of when you hear the word God, but it was something about what is happening when people even use this idea. Whether they believe yeah. in a God or not or whatever, what is happening in the mind or the heart or the, what is the conception? What was that? Yeah, John Caputo a uh, philosopher he I really love, both his work and as a person. He's a John Caputo is a hero of yours oh, that you yeah. then got to meet. Oh, yes. which is And sometimes you shouldn't meet your heroes, but in this, <laughs> in this instance, he lived up to the expectation. How long did you read John Caputo as an admirer of his before you met him? Well, I read one of his books when I was doing my PhD, and I wrote uh, an email to him to go... Really loved the book. It was amazing. Now, in my head, I was writing to Bono. I was thinking, you know, this guy's a superstar. He'll never get back to me. But I forgot that academics are not rock stars. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't get hundreds of thousands of emails. And so he wrote back to me in 10 minutes. 
and said, oh, thanks very much. I really appreciate your writing. Where are you from? And I said, Northern Ireland. And he said to me, I'm going to be in Scotland. Uh, you know, you should come over. And I said, well, what if I brought you over to Belfast? And he was like, great. So I put him up in the worst hotel in Belfast because <laughs> I am so disorganized. It's terrible. The, the pipes were bashing. Um, uh, I put out together a very uh, crazy, chaotic conference, and he loved it. And we had, we had a blast. That was you years email ago. one of your heroes, yeah. and not long after that, he comes to your town and does an event with you. Yeah, it was And incredible. now you do events together. Yeah, and now we work together, and uh, we, we, we discuss things together. We even argue together. But, I mean, I always agree that he's probably right. If I ever disagree with him, my default is, <laughs> I'm probably wrong. I just don't know why. So, that know. is such a good story. Okay, so he talks about... Yeah, he, Go back to that. Yeah, he says... Um, you know, for him, the question is, what is going on? What is the event that takes place in the name God? At its best, what is happening when we use that word? Uh, what is that word calling us to? What is that word referring to? Uh, and so it's an interesting, so he doesn't say kind of like, you know, who is God? He's going, what is going on when we speak about God? Which uh, is similar to your book, obviously. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what would you like me to say about that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, when we talk about God, the question is, what is happening? Yeah, what is happening, yes. And, you know, the, this imaginary symbolic and the real that you mentioned at the beginning, that's taken from a psychoanalyst called Lacan, who's become very big recently again. He's, uh, he's one of the canon, one of the great thinkers of the 20th century. And uh, he used these three terms um, to describe what it means to be human. And uh, it's, it's useful when we think about, you know, what we're talking about when we talk about God. The imaginary is the simplest. We actually touched on it last week. Uh, the imaginary is, if, if you imagine a fairy tale, uh, some fairy tales have a, a little boy, or sorry, a little prince who becomes a king, or a knight that fights an evil dragon or uh, a girl who is mistreated by her sisters and then goes to a party and is, is the most beautiful woman there and you know, marries a prince. Well, the imaginary is, is that image, that prince or that, that, that woman, that young knight. Uh, the imaginary are images that we aspire to. You know, like for me, it's James Bond. My mum loved James Bond when I was a kid. <laughs> I saw every James Bond movie multiple times because my mum, you know, definitely my mum's hero was she wanted to marry James Bond. I don't know if my dad was quite, you know, up to the task. What's your dad's name? Uh, Terry. 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 So he had a lot to live up to. <laughs> um, but, you know, I learned maybe when I was young that, oh, my family, my mum, you know, really likes James Bond. So now I watch Daniel Craig. And in some weird way, um, I... I think that's what masculinity is. I think, you know, he's a man, you know. Not, not even consciously, it just happens. I just enjoy watching those movies or the Bourne movies. It's similar. So the imaginary is kind of like, I, I might feel weak, but I, I would love to be strong. Uh, somebody might feel like they're single and they, they read a fairy tale that talks about someone who's single meeting the person of their dreams. And 
and that's the that's the image, the fantasy image they have that they would like to be. So in relationships, sometimes we go out with people who treat us the way we would like to be seen. So you go out with someone, like if you think of an LA, stars can often surround themselves with people who feed the image that they have, you know, they have everything together. They have a little posse of people who keep the ideal image alive, that they're really together, they're really sorted, they're, they're powerful, they're beautiful. This happens in high school. Happens in the high school. The popular kids in high school surround themselves with like a crew that just keeps telling them how they're the most popular. Yeah. And if someone stops doing that, you often try, you get rid of them. Yeah. You get them out of the crew. You do want yeah. someone to be a truth teller. In a relationship, you might fall in love with someone who thinks, oh, you're so strong, you're so brave, you're brilliant. But the moment they start saying, I don't think you are as strong as you say you are. I think you might be scareder than you're admitting. If you're in the imaginary realm too much, you'll want to get rid of them. And you'll want to find someone who, who solidifies the fantasy image you have of mm -hmm. yourself. And gods often are the same. Our, our gods are often idealized images of ourselves. Uh, God as a, a strong father or, you know, God as a warrior, something like that. So, so sometimes our gods just reflect our idealized images of ourselves. And that, that's kind of the imaginary realm. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Now, number two, symbolic. Symbolic. So in a fairy tale, you know, you have a knight that fights an evil dragon. The symbolic is the structure that, that underlies that image, that tells you that the world has evil things that have to be killed, that there is good and there is bad. Or if you have a fairy tale that talks about a poor person becoming rich, the symbolic is the system that says that's the way it should be. Poverty is bad, having lots of money is good. Or a single person getting married, the symbolic is the structure that says being single is not good and being married is good. And of course, in different cultures, there's different symbolic structures. And in other cultures, rich people become poor in fairy tales. They renounce their wealth. Uh, uh, someone who is married or has a family gives that up uh, and goes into the desert. So different cultures have different symbolic values. And is the symbolic value going from bad to good or good to better? or better to best, what's the value? What's the, the movement is farther, farther from true self, closer to true self, farther from God, closer to God? What's the movement? The movement, well, the symbolic is what kind of justifies what you think is good and bad, pure and impure, holy and unholy. So in, in, in the fairy tale of the, of the knight fighting the dragon, that underneath it, you don't see it. The imaginary is the image, the image of the, the, you know, the knight fighting the dragon. The symbolic is the world that says there is evil monsters in the world and there are pure knights in the world and we have to destroy the evil yeah. monsters. So that's a myth of redemptive violence, yeah. some people call it. Uh, that's, that's the symbolic. Uh, Got it. Now how, now, how would you, like in the modern world, when people use God, how do you see the symbolic yeah. in play? That is where God is used to justify our morality, our beliefs about who is good and bad, uh, who is righteous and who is unrighteous, who is a good Samaritan, who is not. Who, you know, it, the symbolic is that we're not even aware of it. 
It's like it's, it's the grammar we use. When we speak, we're not aware of the grammar we use. The symbolic is this invisible power that we're mostly not aware of, but that we use it to judge people all the time, all the time. Uh, we, and as I say, we may not even know we're sexist or racist or whatever, but we might actually, that, that, you know, that comes out in different ways we're not even aware of. That's the symbolic. Okay, imaginary, symbolic, real. The real. Yeah, the real is, if, if we use the fairy tale analogy, the real isn't in the fairy tale. The real is what challenges the symbolic structure of the fairy tale. So the fairy tale says there is good and there's bad, and we have to fight the bad with weapons. The real is that which is seriously, is the world really as simple as that? Or, you know, you're, a, you're a, 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 little, a girl who is asleep for a thousand years and can only be fulfilled and woken up into life by meeting Prince Charming. The real is saying, seriously, is that, is that the way the world really is? So the real is that which challenges our ways of constructing and understanding the world. How does real relate to imaginary? It, it also then ruptures our idealized images of ourselves. It, it's like, um, it's the point when your whole world that you've constructed, who you are, what you value, is confronted with something that challenges that. And, you're, and you see yourself uh, not as, you know, say someone who's strong, like me, not, not as a James Bond type figure, <laughs> but I encounter myself as someone with fears and anxiety. As you truly are. As I truly am. See, the imaginary is all of the ways in which I am, imagine that I am and portray myself. Yes. Social media seems to, to play into the imaginary in a massive way. That's right. So if you think of social media, it's kind of like an idealized version of ourselves. It's an airbrushed, photoshopped version of us. So when I look at your Facebook profile, you know, I see you, but I see you the way you would like to be Carefully seen. curated. Carefully curated image of yourself. But, but the truth is, even without social media, we do this all the time. When I go out on a Saturday night, I try to curate the image of myself that you see. That... You know, it, it, and that's good and that's fine. But, you know, if you want to really know me, you're not going to really know me if you only interact with me on, on Instagram where I'm showing you my perfect meals. You're sh I'm showing you my perfect holidays and my perfect cups of coffee. Or on Facebook where I'm giving updates that are constantly telling you, you know, how great I am, how good a life I have, or how I believe in all the right causes. You know, that's, you know... You're going, to get, you're going to get a very curated image of me. And what the real does is blast all of this symbolic and imaginary to shreds. Yeah, and if we take the Facebook analogy, the real can be that annoying person on your Facebook page that tells you something that challenges how you think about yourself. Now, that can often not be a nice thing. And sometimes people are idiots who do that, but, but it's, the, it's sometimes the person you want to unfriend because they have a, a view of life that, that offends you, and maybe rightfully so. Maybe it's an offensive view, but sometimes they just say something that challenges your whole way of thinking, and you would rather unfriend them than let what they're saying make you rethink things. So that's kind of like the real. The real is like that, 
that annoying person that says, you know, uh, maybe you don't have it all together. Okay, so Lacan. Yes. A, a psychologist? Yes, yeah, psychoanalyst, yeah. From where? From France. He or she? He, yeah. Jacques came Lacan. up with these three categories when? It was late 20th century, uh, you know, 1960s, 1970s. Like, he actually developed them over the course of 20 years. He actually ha he had these seminars uh, w that he would do weekly, and they were all recorded. And so there's these, there, I think there's 27, I'm not quite sure, but there's roughly 27 of these seminars. And he developed these ideas through those. And these ideas for him were about relationships with each other. Yeah, yeah, and understanding how we understand ourselves, how we uh, try to protect ourselves from suffering, but how often that creates more suffering. So a lot, of, a lot of Lacan was really trying to work out, uh, you know, how how we how we tick really, how we tick, yeah. and and what it means to be a healthy human being. Yeah. yeah. So tell me how you. So tell now take us into when we talk about God then mm -hmm. how these three categories are most illuminating in thinking about what we're talking about when we talk about God. Yeah. Which so, would be a good book title. Absolutely. <laughs> I have to take that title. You're very good at book titles. Very good at book titles. And as I, I talked to somebody as an aside yesterday who who was a designer and he said the first time I got under Rob Bell, it was because his books were beautifully designed. <laughs> he said, I didn't know anything about him, but I saw them, and they were beautifully designed. I thought, I have to read that. I guy. do go. like good design. That's yeah. Whoever that is, thank you. Yeah. That's very kind. Um, but yeah, so in a way, uh, when it comes to religion, we can apply this. So as I said there, you know, we can think of God as a bigger version of ourselves, a flattering image of ourselves. God is that which, you know... We talked about this last week. Just kind of looks like a Superman. All of our values, all of the things that we want, God is that exemplified with a megaphone. And um, and then the symbolic is when we use religion to justify our way of life over and against other people. That we protect ourselves from anybody who thinks differently from us. We surround ourselves by people who value what we value. That just like the pop star in the, you know, I don't know if real pop stars do this, I think some of them do, but who surround themselves with only people who, you know, who give them a sense of themselves that they like, that agree with them, you know, that say yes to everything they want to do. So churches can become like that and, and push out anybody who disagrees, anybody who asks questions. So that's kind of like the symbolic. God is, is used, you know, in, as, as a justification for that. It's interesting to me. Uh, I just heard a politician this week who was like, I'm a, what was it? I'm a Christian. I'm a conservative. I'm a Republican. Mm -hmm. I'm a, and the list was like, all of these things talk to each other. Yeah. And our, because of this, I'm this. Because of this, I'm this which had this really interesting power of, of course, this would be the God position on these, on these issues. Yes, yes. That's, and that's why uh, some theologians in the 20th century, and Karl Barth's one of them, you know, said that, that actually God, if you're going to use the word God, God erupts in our world in, as, a, 
as an is an explosive force that doesn't just rupture our cultural views or our political views, but also our religious views. That 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 if you use the word God as a way of basically saying, thank you, God, that you're just like me. Thank you, God, that you value what I value or that I value what you value. Uh, someone like Karl Barth would say, this is, this is an idol. This is, this, is, this is not the God of the prophets. This is not the God that you find in Christ. Because the God of the prophets would do what? Would, well, think of, think of uh, parables as a great example. They, they screw up everything you think. They mess you up. They, they threw all of your values into question. Everything that you took for granted, parabolic language kind of like messes things up. It dirties stuff. Uh, Kester Bruin actually calls this a dirty theology. Um, it's a theology of, uh, that, that kind of brings chaos where there's order. And, uh, and so, yes, this is, this is what Karl Barth means by the real. God is that which, which breaks everything open. It's that feeling when you're like, I'm the moral one, and then you interact with somebody who has thought through so thoroughly how we spend our money, how we get our food, uh, how this system works for those on the underside of it. And you realize, oh my word, they are living with such a higher ethical standard. They are living with such a greater awareness of how their actions affect those around. And suddenly, all of your, I'm, I'm sort of a moral, oh my word, I have so far to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I talked to somebody last year who worked, uh, I think, with uh, Native Americans. And he was in uh, kind of this community. And at first, he looked at how they were bringing up kids. And he was horrified. Uh, I don't know why exactly, but he said the first time I experienced it, these kids were it, with multiple adults going from family to family. It was hard to work out, you know, whose kids were whose kids. And he said, I spent some time in that community. And he said, I woke up one day and I was horrified about how I and how my community bring up kids. He said, I was horrified that we keep them isolated from other families, that we protect them from the, the kind of the, the pollution of other people, that we're so terrified that we create these nuclear families. That's the incoming of the real. That's where you encounter another community, and at first you think they're weird and bizarre and strange, and then you see yourself through their eyes and you go, oh my goodness, I'm weird and bizarre and strange. <laughs> uh, and yeah. It's that experience that is the real. And Lacan, for him, it was how do you be a healthy human being? Yeah, yeah, in many ways, that's it. How do you, yeah. Um, and we, yeah. So how do you, so what do you say to people who, okay, so how do you think in healthy ways about God or the idea of God, or uh, last episode I was asking you simply, why even bother with the word God, or why do we even still need this category, yeah. and how could this category, or this idea, or this concept, or belief, faith, whatever, how does this move a person into greater health, vitality? Uh, yeah. Well, I think of it in this in term, in this because somebody might listen to this and go, okay, the real is, is the best, that's how you think about God, but actually these are three intertwined realities for Lacan. You, you, you have ideal images. Of course you do. You grew up with images of what, what it is to be good, what it is to be kind, uh, you know, what, what it is to, to operate in the world in a, in a healthy way. And that's good. And you have symbolic structures that help you work out, you know, you know what is going to damage you, 
and what is going to heal you. Uh, what you shouldn't touch and what you should touch. What is clean and what is unclean. And that's all fine. But what we often do is we get so caught up in our idealized images, in the structures of who we think are right and who we think are wrong, and we close ourselves off from others. And so the real, it has to be there as well. The real is that which just reminds us and pokes and prods at us to be open to new revelations, new possibilities, new ideas. It's that which keeps us humble, um, which reminds us that we are not the center of the universe, that we have something to learn uh, from, from basically from others and mostly from those who are uh, suffering and are oppressed, you know. It's interesting because I will often say to myself, everyone is your teacher. Mm -hmm. And this has helped me so often when I'm having an, some sort of interaction that's just driving me crazy or some person who just so annoys me or something gets under my skin, everyone is your teacher. Mm. And do not dismiss this person. Do not rush to blow them off so you can get them out of your hair so you can move on to what you really want to do. But like pause because this person is your teacher. They yes. have been sent to teach you something. Yes. And especially the most painful relationships or uh, interactions with history to them or a truth that needs to be said, but I just don't want to say it because it's so hard to yeah. tell. I hate confronting people or saying things that aren't great. Hmm. And like this is, this is your teacher. Yes. This person has come to teach you something about yourself. So they're probably going to expose something or they're going to show you that there's something here for you. Yes. Um, this is why, I mean, for me, the church, and by the church I mean, you know, the community who, uh, you know, are trying to be faithful to this event of God, uh, are the people who are there to be evangelized. We, we are there to be born again, to be converted. And what I, what I mean by that is that the church is the place that is at its best, a community of people who are constantly open to being transformed, to being changed. So I call it being born again, again, again. Again and again. We <laughs> must be born again. We must be born again. That's why I set up the evangelism project in Belfast, where we went to be evangelized by other communities. <laughs> so, you, yeah. you all would go to other religions and ask them to evangelize you. Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> So what we would do, and we did this once a month, and we would go to the Islamic Society, the Jewish community, we'd go to Scientology. Would you literally show up and just say, could you please evangelize us? Yeah, well, we'd set it up in advance. So we would, you know, contact them and say, can we come and, and, and meet with you and talk to you? But the, the secret was this. The secret was this. So we went, yeah, and we asked them, tell us what you believe. We're, we really want to listen. But the evangelism actually didn't happen then. The evangelism happened in part two. So part one was a great conversation. What do you believe? How do you see the world? And that was just informative. And that was enriching. The evangelism happened when we said to, say, the Islamic society, the people who were gathered there, we said to them, you know, what is it like to be a Muslim in Belfast? Uh, what is it like to encounter the Christian community in Belfast? How has the church responded to you? Uh, you know, what is it like to, to live in the areas that you live? 
And then you would hear them speak about their experience of the church. And you would see elements of the church that you were maybe blind to, the pollutions that you were creating without even being aware of it. And so you were being evangelized into Christianity. You were being evangelized into being better Christians. So it wasn't that you were there to be evangelized into becoming a Muslim. Somebody might do that. But when you heard how the Jewish community, for example, experienced the church, you saw maybe things that you would prefer not to see. Just like if you're in love with someone who points out something in your life that you would prefer not to see. Oh, good um, Lord. And then I'm on a 22-year run on that. Yeah. Well, you've got a lot of bad stuff. You know, As a friend, yeah, there's a lot to work on there. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's it. Like, when you're in, if, if you're living in purely in the imaginary, as soon as your partner starts to point something out, you're like, oh, this is too much. I can't handle this. And you might break up with them. But if you're able to cultivate a sensitivity to yeah. their voice, they evangelize you into a better version of yourself. They evangelize you into a better Rob Bell. Oh, that's a good pickup line. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay, I should. Please I, uh, evangelize me into a better version of myself. Yeah, when you think about it, though, you're. you're your most healthy relationships are the people with, with whom you want them to tell you the truth. Yes. I mean, I have friends who I'm like, tell me where I'm off. Please tell me where this I'm off or yeah. this smells or something's askew. Yes. Um, please give, give, me, give me all the edges you can find. Yeah. And it's, it's so difficult to do that you, you, it's hard to listen to someone who's not your friend. It's hard to listen to someone also who doesn't like you. Now, you still can, um, but it's very, very hard. Yeah. I can't do it. My defenses come up. Yeah. Right? But if it's someone who you respect and who respects you, yeah. it makes it easier to hear what they have to say. So in the evangelism project, the idea was we will be evangelized into better... Uh, uh, better a, a us. Bit, better us, a better community, a better Christian community by listening to the other. Because I need, my, I need your eyes in order to see myself. That's what I, I need. I need the eyes of the other in order to see who I am. Because I try to hide who I am in all manner of ways. You know? so, so when someone says, like, who is, God, you know, who is God to you? How do you understand God? God is that which disrupts my um, imagine. How, how, uh, fill that in for me then. Yeah, I mean, you see this in the conversion of Paul, right? So Paul's going along, he's trying to... Book of Acts is Book in the New Testament. It's a guy named Paul. Very good. It's like a Jewish, like, super Jew. Yes. Who has this experience. Yep. With the Christ. Yeah, like he's he's the, Paul is going around persecuting this group called the Christians. Yeah, uh, he thinks if you can get rid of them, everything will be great. We'll get back to business as usual, and then he has this moment where he's blinded, and he hears a voice saying, "Why do you persecute me?" Which is a psychoanalytic insight. Is like you, you where he's going like the very the very people I'm persecuting uh, is where God is. That's the insight. So. Uh, he's kind of going, oh my goodness, the, the, the people I think are the problem, they're not the problem. They're here to help. They're here to help. Um, so in the same way I say it, it's a psychoanalytic insight because we might have a sore back and we might have fatigue and we might have depression and we think that's the problem. 
But actually, if we listen to those things, they tell us that they're the solution to a problem. We might have a sore back because we have a job we hate. We might have fatigue because we're in a relationship that exhausts us that isn't healthy. Uh, we might have depression because you know, there's something in our relationship with our parents that's bad. And you have to listen to that. And then that helps you, you become a better person. I don't know if we talked about this before, but the word symptom, a symptom is, is the name for an unpleasant truth that you cannot speak. A symptom is when something you cannot speak speaks for you. So that the, you know, your bad back, oh, I've got such a bad back. If you listen to it, it's saying, you know what, there's something in your life that's just not working. Your job, you hate your job. Or if I go back to my partner and I shout at them, because I can't shout at my boss, because if I shout at my boss, I'll get fired. So I displace my anger at my boss to my partner. Um, that's a symptom. Now, Lacan spells symptom um, in a different way, S-I-N-T-H-O-M-E, which in French, my French is terrible, but I think is Saint-Homme. And Saint-Homme means holy man. And holy man means a prophet. So Lacan says your symptom can be a prophet if you listen to it. And, you know, if you listen to a prophet, they will, you know, they tell you, you can have a new life. And if you don't listen to a prophet, disaster results. <laughs> so in some respects, what we, what we do is we listen to our symptoms and then they become prophets calling us to better lives. And for Paul, it was like that. He, he was out there persecuting these Christians, thinking they were the symptom, they were the problem, but they weren't. They were telling him that there was a there was a problem in in the in the religion and politics of the day and uh as he opened himself up to that insight he was transformed which is why he and, and paul who pete's talking about writes most of, a good chunk of the new testament he keeps coming back to grace yeah which is i was so convinced that i had somehow earned something but actually grace is the is the engine of the thing. Yeah, because think of it in terms of the prison population, for example. We might think, oh, you know, there's, a, there's racism and poverty issues in, in the prison system. That's a problem. But what if that is actually the solution to a problem? That those problems in, are in our society. So what we do is we try to put them behind walls. We try to cut them off and we think, if only we get rid of certain people, everything will be fine. And we think when we go to the prison that we're being good news to the prisoners. Or if I go to the homeless, I'm good news to the homeless. But what if they're good news to us? Because they tell us that there's a problem in our social body that we're not looking at. And so if we, so it's, if we want to be converted as a society, we have to go to the most oppressed people in our community, let them speak to us as prophets, showing us the problems that exist within our community so that we can be converted, transformed, and society can improve. We must be born again. Uh, that's interesting, because Kristen and I were just talking about how we had just read that there are 66,000 homeless in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. And downtown, especially like Skid Row, there's all these people doing great work, but all these people saying, this is a, this is a massive, massive, massive problem. And Chris and I were just talking about how when we had, I think LA Times had just printed that 66,000 number, and we were just so sort of astonished with that number. But what we kept talking about is, that's, what is that? 
that's saying something. Yes. That's teaching us something. That's, that's like a, a megaphone. Yeah. That's shouting something about the very nature of modern society that we would have that many homeless. Um, uh, yeah, that's as opposed exactly to, well, it. how can we fix that problem? It was like, what is that problem saying to us? And so you're saying when people talk about God, for some people, God is simply an inflated version of yourself. Mm-hmm. Everything you're kind of not, but you wish you were, and it keeps you in a suspended state of believing you're much, much better, greater, happier, shinier. For some, God is simply how you justify or rationalize whatever system you've built, whatever empire you are running. Yep. Um, whatever course of action you've chosen, God is how you sanctify it. Yep. God is with me. Yes. Um, and you are saying, or you could look at God pierces your imaginary and your symbolic with, this is who you are. Yes. This is what's happening this is the reality in your midst. Adjust yourself to this. Yes. And it's a never-ending process. This, this can be called, the, Tillich called it the Protestant principle. Because he said the Protestant principle uh, is the principle that there's always reformation. There is no end to reforming. You're always reforming. You're yeah. always rethinking. You're always changing. And it's the, funny when people talk, uh, someone the other day talked about the reformed, or the, so-and-so's reformed, and I was like, oh, they yeah. are. How boring. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what could be more boring than reformed? Yeah. That like, actually, it's reforming. Yeah. And in the, in the, it's and an the, ongoing thing that's happening. Yeah. And it never stops happening. Never stops. And in the, in, the, in, the theolo- in the Protestant theological tradition, Luther was big on that. He said, always reforming. Always reforming. Always open to the real. Yes. God is the real. Yeah. And then that, then that means our symbolic and imaginary aren't, bad in themselves because we have to construct worlds sure of course we do but we always have to you you use a beautiful term they always need to be pierced pierced and 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 that can be painful but actually it's what keeps keeps things moving forward yeah seriously pete rollins okay um and if somebody wanted to which of your do you talk about this in any of your books yeah, which which would be probably the divine magician. Is the, the divine magician one, yeah. you talk about, ladies and gentlemen, Pete Rollins, the divine magician, available wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> um, and then uh, let's wrap this one up, and then next week we'll do a part three. Oh yes. All right. Yeah. The symbolic, the imaginary, the real, not to be confused with the. <laughs> Super being, hyper being, ground of being event. <laughs> uh-huh. And then next week you'll have more for us. Brilliant. We'll just keep going. I love this. Thank oh, you. Oh, grace and peace, everyone. <laughs>